WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James, and I was going to say laziness is something to which I aspire, but that's wrong. I am naturally lazy, and uh, I control it. I do what I have to do when I have to do it, but other than that, I opt opt for lazy. And uh, yeah, I'm a poser all the way around. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll delve into being a girl so quick to get somebody else to do something for me. Yeah, <laughs> one of the most famous. It's that check engine. I did. It was still there. And <laughs> so with that in mind, I am horrified to find out that my entire life is a lie because I cannot possibly be lazy because laziness doesn't exist. This should be good. Dr. Devin Price is putting that theory forth in a book that is coming out in January. In fact, there is a big press event at Women and Children's First coming up January 7th at 7 o'clock. Laziness Does Not Exist is the title of the book. And Dr. Price, welcome to WGN Radio. Hi, thanks for having me, Raleigh. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm horrified to think I've been living a lie. So tell me about laziness not existing because I, I tend to enjoy it every, every chance I get to experience it. Well, I do like to hear it framed in a positive way that you're uh, describing it right there. That you could maybe get on the same page with. Um, But, uh, yeah, the whole idea behind uh, laziness does not exist is this idea that um, laziness as a word that has this moral condemnation, this idea that if someone isn't doing something, it's because of some innate moral failure that they're committing. That's the thing that I'm really taking issue with, uh, that usually if we look at someone and they're failing to do, do something that's important, Either they've decided that it isn't important, um, which, in which case they're just being rational, even if we disagree with them on their values, and we can kind of try and persuade them maybe why why they should maybe care about the thing that they don't care about. Um, or if a person cares about something and they're just, for whatever reason, still failing to meet that goal, it's because of uh, there being a ton of structural barriers that, in place, that are in place uh, that are getting in the way for them or uh, personal challenges and struggles that they're dealing with. Um, basically barriers to action that either we can't see or that we're not really recognizing and figuring out how can we remove some of those barriers. You know, that, that's really interesting because the way you are setting this up, I realize that calling someone lazy is actually letting them off easy because there's something else that's going on there if it's, a, if it's a case of your reaction to you're lying on the couch when you should be doing this or that. Uh, I'm usually lying on the couch if I have a chance to lie on the couch, not necessarily that, that there was something else I was otherwise avoiding. But you're right, laziness is, is positioned as this is, this is a bad thing. Now, uh, now now, with that in mind, when someone encounters somebody who is recalcitrant on some level, they're just not following through, maybe on agreed to tasks, be it in a relationship or a work situation, uh, other than calling them a lazy bum, uh, how do you get to the root of the matter? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's going to vary from situation to situation, right? Like, um, so I'm a professor, so obviously I see a lot of professors and teachers calling their students lazy, even right now, which is kind of stunning, um, considering how many things everybody has on their plate right now. So many of, you know, my students are raising kids uh, at home and working from home and taking classes on Zoom. So, of course, they're you know, not as productive as usual. So when it's a situation that's like that, um, I always say have a little bit of humility and try to really think about what are some of the things going on or might be going on in this person's life that you don't see um, and be open to uh, hearing people's context, not necessarily as an excuse, but as here's a problem that we can try to troubleshoot together. So if you need an extension, let's talk about what that looks like. If you need an alternate assignment, let's talk about how to still cover what's important, but in a way that will actually work with you and all of the uh, the dumpster fires you're trying to put out in your life. 
Uh, but I'm glad you brought up the example, too, of uh, a partner who, let's say, uh, their spouse isn't, you know, doing the dishes or doing their fair share around the house. That's a situation where it is, you don't necessarily have to be completely perfect and patient and compassionate if someone uh, looks like they're not meeting the goals that are important to you. Then it comes down to what are your values, you know, um, and going up to that spouse and really saying, like, if you value me, you need to show that you actually care about doing these things, and we need to really actually talk about what our shared goals and values are. Because um, I think just because I think laziness doesn't exist as this moral failure doesn't mean that we have to be um, doormats to people who have, you know, put us in a situation where we have to pick up the slack for them. As long as you don't hit them with a saucer while you're telling them this, I assume. So there are probably ways to uh, frame the uh, frame the discussion. But yes, now it's interesting. I'm sure uh, being in the world of academe and all that, you you hit this comment, uh, like you say, professor, saying their students are lazy. But uh, a lot of employers saying, uh, you know, these young workers, they're they're just all lazy. Uh, they're not motivated, and I'm not sure that those are the same things. But uh, one of the things that I guess would worry me the most is almost a laziness of thinking. And you know, we, we talk about this a lot off the air, that back in the day, uh, kids were taught uh, basically how to think, not what to think. But now, seeing kids work through a logical argument, it just seems to be almost elusive to them. I'm seeing a lot of what you call lazy thinking, for lack of a better word, but non-thinking in reality. So what's going on? Because I'm not the only person who's mentioning this. You know, I've I've heard a lot about the kind of, like, myth of the entitled millennial student who's uh, really, I don't know, uh, coddled or, or really uncomfortable being challenged. Um, I've been teaching for 11 years at a ton of different institutions, and I've just never met that student that I keep hearing so much about that is like that. Um, I, you know, not to say that they don't exist. I've certainly heard from faculty that teach at more elite institutions that really wealthy kids sometimes have that you know, that bubble around that that can make it hard for them to handle criticism or, or, or challenge um, because of all of those, because they've had a relatively easy of life. But, you know, I've mostly been teaching working adults, even if some of them are, you know, millennials and Zoomers and in a young age bracket. And a lot of those people are working incredibly hard and incredibly overwhelmed all the time. And we just look at, you know, today's students, on average, is going to have to pay so much more for school while working, often while raising a family, and they're going to get less out of that degree. So I see a lot of people that are just kind of overwhelmed all the time, more than I see, and who are doing an incredible amount of work, um, more than I see this um, this specter that is very popular in the public consciousness of, of lazy thinking, um, kind of idle millennials. That's interesting because I do think part of it's socioeconomic and maybe at both ends of the spectrum uh, for different reasons. But you do see in many areas, uh, and it wouldn't obviously it wouldn't be in an academic setting because if they're going to school, they already have made some decisions to to further their life. But uh, individuals who who literally are, you know, for lack of a better word, and it's the catch-all phrase, they're 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 lazy. They'll uh, uh, it'll it'll be good enough. It'll never be good. It'll uh, it'll be basically no motivation. So with regard to that, 
why are we seeing in some settings really a lack of motivation or a lack of pride, as some people might call it, or other words that could be considered derisive or judgmental, but certainly uh, a lack of what you're, de- you're mentioning that you're encountering where, where kids are really motivated and, uh, and on it. I see a lot more, uh, certainly as, as an employer, uh, of kids who are anything but that. You know, I think we're in a uh, a cultural moment where there is this huge disjoint, where the way that we do work today is so different from the way work was done, you know, even even a decade ago. Um, and so I think there is a really big disjoint in our different people's notions of what productivity looks like, what uh, being a good worker looks like. Um, and we can see that even right now in COVID times with how many employers are imposing these really tight restrictions on um, monitoring their employees' activities, right? There's this, there's this huge lack of trust in a lot of um, companies now where people are working from home, and how do you trust them to actually get the work done? And um, what that looks like in a lot of workplaces is key logging software or software that uh, makes sure that your computer is active uh, the full eight hours of the day that you're supposed to be active or might even take screenshots of your computers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm hearing from a lot of people who are dealing with that kind of immense pressure of constantly having their every activity monitored. And I also just look at the productivity stats that industrial organizational psychologists have been collecting for decades, and we see that the amount of product, the amount of work that the average employee in the U.S. produces has been going up for decades. And part of that is because technology makes it easier to do more, but part of that is just that people are working longer hours and having more expected of them. So I think there's this weird disjoint where a lot of times when a culture is grinding people and grinding them um, as hard as it possibly can, that's, that's the moment when a culture hates apparent, quote-unquote, laziness the most. That's when we feel the most pressure to fill every waking moment uh, with activity. So I think, I I really don't think that there is this increase in um, laziness. We certainly don't see that in productivity stats um, in any industry that's being, you know, monitored by by psychologists in the U.S. Um, So I think what we really are seeing instead is different styles of doing work, people who are incredibly stressed out, um, employers who are trying to kind of control a very changing and different work dynamic and workforce, and it's just uh, creating a lot of tension um, for a lot of people in various ways. Certainly the factor of automation and what employers have been sold in the name of it and how it affects the employee is worthy of discussion, and we'll pick that up. Laziness Does Not Exist will be the book. It's coming out in early January. There'll be a book press event January 7th at the Women and Children First of Chicago, and we are talking with Devin Price, Dr. Devin Price, Ph.D., about that. She's a social psychologist. I shouldn't say she, and we're going to talk about that as well because I saw something on the screen and I gotta I gotta understand this and right now I don't but I will and you will too coming up on WGN radio up the morning we roll along, maybe blue skies above. Everyone's in love up the lazy river. How happy we'll be up the lazy river with me. Up the lazy river by the old mill runner. Lazy, lazy river in the noonday sun. You can linger for a while. 
troubles be a bad dream, a dream of me. Oh, yeah, another lazy song. WGN Radio, I'm Raleigh James. I'm talking with Dr. Devin Price, and we're talking about the laziness lie. You are lazy, an entire book on the subject coming up. Lazy does, laziness does not exist. But, Dr. Price, i got to ask, because on the, uh, uh, on the booking sheet it said, do not call her she or her, them or they only. So, explain this to me. Uh, yeah, so I'm sure you've heard of people being non-binary before, right? Not identifying as either a man or a woman. Uh-huh. So that's what that is. Um, well, I just use gender neutral. Okay, out. let me ask you then, because when I look at it, them and they are plural pronouns. So I look at that and I think to myself, oh my God, we're talking to someone schizophrenic. There are more than one person in this body. So, uh, and I realize the English language is is not complete in all sorts of ways. We don't have a, a second person singular. Everything's you. We, we threw thou out generations ago. But is there any way we can come up with some pronouns that are neutral? neutral gender and are singular? Well, you know, um, people have been coming up with those for um, for decades now, so we have Z here, things like that. Um, they're called neo-pronouns. And it's, it's so funny because you're kind of, uh, as a non-binary person in a double bind, if you use one of those neo-pronouns, people say things to you like, oh, it's so confusing, it's, it's so unfamiliar, you can't just make up words. Uh, and then if you use they, them, then people say, oh, it's so confusing. It's so unusual to use something in a slightly different way. Like, why don't we make up a new word? So you're kind of screwed either way uh, because it's a concept people are still getting used to. But personally, I like they better. Um, most people do know how to use it. You know, if you find a cell phone left uh, behind in a room and you don't know who it belongs to, you would say in the singular, um, somebody left their phone in the room, right? So even though we do use it mostly as plural, we do have the architecture in our brain to do it singular, so that's why I, I went with that one. Okay. All right. So, so them and they. Uh, how does this play out on campus? Is this a big issue with students? Are they very aware of this, or is this still considered a fringe topic? Um, I'd say uh, at most universities, students are pretty aware of it. Um, it certainly tracks along generational lines that younger people are more likely to know it, but of course there are people, you know, I'm in my 30s, there's people in their 40s, 50s, and beyond who who also are out as non-binary or genderqueer. Um, so, you know, um, when I talk to colleagues who teach at more conservative and more rural school, schools, that's where you see people who have more um, resistance or outrage to it. But for the most part, um, and, you know, psychology is a field where people are pretty curious and open-minded about these kinds of things. So it's, it's usually a pretty um, unremarked-upon thing, you know. It's just a normal fact of life at this point. All right, well, that, that works. There you are. And uh, so laziness, I think what, I, what I've come, the conclusion I've reached in the first half hour is, is really it's all about definition. You know, my, my definition of laziness is always very positive because I, I think it's an attribute. But when it's used derisively to explain why somebody isn't behaving in a manner that you desire them to behave, it becomes a negative. And I assume that that is the premise of the book. Yeah, laziness as a moral condemnation as uh, as the explanation for why someone doesn't do something isn't really logical, um, and it doesn't really uh, meaningfully address any kind of social problem. Uh, so instead of just dismissing people who are failing to do something important as, oh, they're just lazy, we really need to take a look at the bigger picture and what's getting in the way, what's making it hard for them to act. We were talking about 
you know, workers, employers, and, and automation. And I, I want to pick this up in the second half hour because what I see increasingly is that in the name of automation, employers have thought, oh, I can get rid of uh, two employees for every one that I have. And suddenly you've got one person doing the work of three in that call center or now in their computer with their keystrokes logged at home. And I would think that not only is that a prescription for burnout, but but it quickly becomes customer disservice. So we'll pick it up right there. We're talking with Dr. Devin Price and uh, interesting book. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. Normally I say, I got to read the book first, but, uh, but Tom and Ashley said, well, that's nice. It hasn't come out yet, but it's a great premise. So uh, indeed it, uh, it is interesting. If you've got any comments, uh, yes, a whole, whole, Hurl yourself off the couch and call. 888-876-5593 is 8888-RALEIGH on WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James, that's Chubby Checker, Lazy Elsie Molly, 1964 on Parkway, number 7 R&B, 40 Pop. And Voice and Heart wrote that, and uh, you rarely hear it, and I, of course, rarely play it, but hey, it had Lazy in the title, so it worked for me. We're talking with Devin Price, and uh, Lazy is in the book title, Well, Laziness Does Not Exist. It's coming out in early January, and it's a fascinating discussion, particularly when laziness is used to berate people, and until I started talking to Dr. Price, I never really looked at it that way, since I consider it such a wonderful virtue. (laughs) That's right. I'll take it every chance I get. But, as I was saying, Dr. Price, far too many employers have been sold the bill of goods that, well, you have voicemail and you got emails, so you don't need an assistant, you don't need a secretary. Well, you've got computers and you've got programs, so three people don't need to be there. You can do this on your own. And I'm seeing that a lot of people who are working today, their productivity, if anything, is going down because the requirements have become impossible to fulfill. Are you finding that? Well, yes, there's there's a big trend where across a lot of different industries, if somebody quits or is fired or if a position's eliminated, a lot of employees just aren't filling them anymore. So in order to just kind of keep budget lines tight and look like you've had a cost reduction, if somebody leaves the company, you just take their duties and you just dump on on over to someone else. So, you know, in my own academic department, we've had, uh, you know, three or four administrative positions that we just hadn't filled for years. Uh, and have just spread out to other people um, without hiring anybody new. And, you know, I have a friend who works in an architectural firm who it's the same thing, and now she's doing, like, 80-hour work weeks on a regular basis. So it's a pretty common pressure to a lot of different industries having to tighten the belt for various reasons or having pressure to tighten the belt. 
uh, that uh, instead of distributing work the way that it used to be, you're having one person juggle three or four jobs um, and maybe using technology as a crutch, if that. And then sometimes, again, a, a manager will look at someone who's in that position who is just barely struggling to stay above water, if that, and then says, you know, you're underperforming at the stuff you used to do. Why are you being so lazy? And it's just it's so infuriating to see. It's really heartbreaking. It is infuriating. Worse than that, when you start to scratch the surface of this, when you have a workforce that's put in an untenable situation, the best and the brightest will often bail. They're not sticking around under those uh, under those working conditions because they don't have to. And so what very often you wind up with are the people who were maybe least adept at juggling the balls that were in front of them before, and now you've just added four more. So it seems that the world is starting to function on burnout. And then you add the psychology involved with the fear of COVID-19. And that's like living at control, alternate delete emotionally for many people. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, for a lot of people were already, you know, pretty much at the top of the burnout meter before all of this happened. And then you just add the uncertainty and stress of COVID where, even if, let's say, you're someone who's incredibly lucky, you still have a job, you're able to work from home, let's say that you don't have, you know, a cramped apartment and kids running around and uh, that's being at your wit's end. Still, just the very uncertainty of it and all of the news coming in all of the time, that enough is, is, is enough to put people in a state of real emotional uh, and informational overload. And we know psychologically uncertainty puts people into fight or flight, which makes it really hard for you to think in a deeper way. Um, so, yeah, so we have a lot of people who are just uh, really um, overextended, overloaded with information, a lot of it digital junk data that's still very alarming looking. Uh, and so, yeah, you have a recipe for burnout, mistakes due to people being overwhelmed and, um, and people feeling guilty that no matter how much they have, kind of staring them in the face, that they're not doing enough. On top of this, of course, is the fallout, like in the case of customer service, whether it's tech support or uh, a consumer rep or what have you, uh, trying to get an individual on the phone, if you're at the customer end of this equation, has become maddening. Entire companies have eliminated uh, their entire uh, phone bank ability to call in. You'll get the message that uh, we can call you back if you're lucky, or in some cases, you'll get the out-and-out message that we can't speak to you on the phone. Maybe they'll frill it up and how they say it, but that's what they're saying, and go to our, our website or whatever. Or you get the cue where you're on hold for two hours and 47 minutes before you get a live person. And then when you do, not only are they working from home, but this is a God-honest true story. I got somebody who clearly was on a farm. I was calling tech support, and the thing I heard in the background was chickens, and a lot of them. And so you look at this kind of situation, and it seems like not only workers, but people in general are on their last nerve. Uh, I think if I get a bill that's wrong and I think I might have to call the billing department of a, of a you know, utility or a credit card company, I'd almost rather be flogged at that moment. And I have a feeling that this is spilling over on the timber of the average person. The frustration level is palpable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my, um, my driver's license has been expired since April, and I haven't been able to get it because I go out to the DMV here in Chicago, and it's lines going around the block if, in, you know, the DMV is closed again now. Uh, every public institution and private, you know, corporation that we have to interface with, whether it's the electric company or, or the DMV, uh, is 
not operating the way it used to, and it was still kind of a pain to interface with them before COVID. So, uh, so I, you know, and then you add on to that if somebody has kids that they have to log into Zoom school oh. during the day or some other responsibility juggle, and you just have a recipe for bills not getting paid on time, uh, errors with bills not being able to get corrected, people not having the documents they need, people not being able to vote because they can't get the documents they need, and just the snowball of people uh, falling through the cracks. Um, it, and it's just a systemic issue that all these things are kind of interconnected. So as one falls apart, it's like a domino effect. Yeah, and that does. That that affects your your functioning emotion. Uh, literally, I, I laugh that people are existing on their last nerve. And I, I think that it is there for a lot of people. And- you know, we, we see some things that are stereotypical, but now it's across the spectrum. Like one of the things that we had always heard, and I'll bet you you discussed this in, in your book, and that is uh, welfare recipients are just lazy. And you, you hear that, and then you start to scratch the surface on that and see that in many cases, the system is set up that absolutely penalizes those who are trying to get out of it, for instance, maybe losing the uh, insurance benefits or or something else of that nature, that it's not necessarily an easy path, and it's very easy to dismiss them as being lazy. Now, now of course, there are some people who are not lazy, they're out-and-out criminal, but that that's not necessarily the majority of people. So are you addressing that in the book? Yeah, yeah, that's one of the first examples that I have in the book of um, something that I used to see before COVID times when I would walk to my office, uh, people on Michigan Avenue in Chicago asking for money, and then maybe a, a tourist telling their kid, don't give that person money, they're just lazy, they're just going to spend it on drugs. And what that kind of um, framework ignores is just how much work and trauma it is to be homeless or to be in poverty, to get any of the benefits if you do even qualify for them, constantly meeting with social workers, constantly waiting in government offices, constantly being submitted to um, mental health reviews and doctor's appointments. And that's just to kind of get the bare minimum, kind of get a little bit of income or get uh, food stamps or something like that. Um, And then to kind of overcome that beyond that and to get an education or get some kind of work and break out of some kind of cycle that's just really grinding you down is just then a whole other level of punishing difficulty. Um, And then you're exactly right to raise uh, issues such as uh, losing and not being qualified for benefits anymore the second you squeak over a slight bit of income that's still not really enough to live on. So um, so we dismiss a lot of people and uh, blame individuals for these huge systemic bureaucratic problems that push people into having almost no choice but to ask for change on the corner because they've tried everything else. Right, and that, that's, that's it. You would think that after all of these decades, when you have a situation where the individual who wants to work but cannot work because the first several jobs they have will not anywhere meet, meet the benefits they're getting for their family, uh, you would think that by now, and uh, yeah, there are platitudes and they say, you know, welfare to workfare and all this, but the reality is there, for most people, really is no path off it that is in any way streamlined that makes sense. And we're talking decades now. Absolutely. Yeah. And the attempts that uh, the U.S. and other countries have tried to impose, um, you know, for in the U.K. in the past couple of years, they've had a really tough welfare to work program where they've taken a lot of people's disability benefits away. Um, and that's been linked to an increase in premature deaths in a bunch of people with chronic health conditions where 
okay, now they do have to go to work, but they were never really in a position where they didn't have a good leg to stand on to do that. They weren't in a position where they were either ready or that just was never going to be, you know, full-time work was never going to be the right path for them. So, you know, a lot of the attempts that people have had uh, in the name of motivating people or, or pushing people into the workforce, it's just kind of entrenched these problems even worse. Um, and, yeah, it's just incredibly dismaying. Well, well, it is. And again, as a social psychologist, clearly you, you studied these things. And we were talking last hour about the uh, quote-unquote opioid crisis and, and the real crisis being that people who are truly in pain no longer can get medication that they need, but that's not the, the popular sentiment. So the popular sentiment might be, well, get them all off welfare, they're just lazy. Or we have uh, we have... Clearly, we have immigration issues, but I think our largest immigration issues start with what's wrong with legal immigration. We've got we've got a system that is just broken on so many levels. And I think until we really get a harness on legal immigration, tackling illegal immigration almost becomes secondary. Yet, while I hear politicians pandering on both sides of the aisle to either pro or con for illegal immigration, I don't hear too many people standing up and saying, hey, the system as it is is broken and we need to re-haul, you know, overhaul this. We're not, we're not putting logic into the problems. Right, yeah. When you look at a, at a system that's put in place that is so difficult to navigate, that um, that people really can't interface with it and really get through it, even when they make a good faith effort, or the majority of people can't. Uh, then, and then you look at the individuals who are the victims of that or who are responding to that in logical way. The system's broken. Then skirting around the system is a logical decision for a lot of people, or it's the only decision that they have um, that seems viable. So the fact we focus so much on that and on trying to identify the bad actors that are the boogeymen that we need to either punish or be scared of instead of looking at the system that is encouraging and facilitating uh, behavior and excluding people. It's just, uh, it seems to be the American way at this point. Find an individual to make the boogeyman instead of looking what we're, what we're failing to do as a society um, to meet people's needs or to make bureaucracies work. Uh, rather than grind people down. Well, and that, that, of course, not only the American way, that's that's sadly political human nature. Uh, there, there are some motivators that just work when you're talking about the crowd mentality, and the best motivation, of course, is fear. And uh, there's been nothing better for those who seek to really dominate and control than to put a population in fear over, in this case, the boogeyman being COVID-19. And you see that. I'm not saying that necessarily any uh, any government entity created this or uh, any politician, but the fastest measurement of time is the time that elapsed between the discovery that this was a problem and politicians of all stripes jumping on it with their, their own results. And again, what a great motivator is fear. And that's where we'll pick it up, because right now we have a population that is darn near terrorized. We're talking with Dr. Devin Price, and uh, we're talking about social psychology and laziness in the negative sense of the word, though, as I say, I always think it's something to aspire to. But laziness does not exist. However, unseen barriers do. 888-876-5593 is 
WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James. That's Cy Zentner of the Lazy River. A surprising top 40 hit in 1961 on Liberty. It's a jazz trombonist. Hokie Carmichael wrote it, of course. A fine song of a Lazy River. Yeah, Lazy's in the title. And Laziness Does Not Exist is the title of the book that Dr. Devin Price, social psychologist, writer, and activist, has coming out in January, talking about a lot of facets of that. And uh, here we are in covid And as we were saying, of course, it's really put pressure on every aspect of the employment uh, uh, picture. But on top of that, it's certainly a great motivator for politicians keeping a uh, an entire populace terrified. If I were to put a crystal ball in front of you, where are we going with this? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm worried that we're going to keep having the same song and dance that um, in Chicago it's, it's really stark where uh, we have cases rising and uh, we have a mayor who in her messaging is very consistent about um, scolding individuals for seeking out the comfort of, of family and having people, you know, one or two people over to their home, mm-hmm. which, you know, I'm, I'm being very careful. It's very important that we do, you know, not have our... Um, ICU beds overloaded, um, so it should be a free-for-all. But all of this policing of individual behavior instead of looking at ways in which cities and states failed us, the way that we just utterly didn't have contact tracing and mass testing the way so many other governments that helped kind of control the spread did, uh, and the way that we continue to just keep blaming individuals for quote-unquote partying and being irresponsible and being lazy and things like that. Um, I wish I could say that we wouldn't continue to have that cycle, but I think it's so ingrained in our culture and how we deal with problems or fail to deal with them that I think we'll probably still keep seeing this same cycle until a vaccine finally gets widely distributed. And then, of course, that will have its issues as well in terms of whether it's voluntary, mandatory, and under what conditions or uh, whether how widespread available. I mean, there, there are so many things that will uh, accompany uh, that vaccine. But regardless of any of these scenarios, the idea that you are taking people and suggesting they isolate from their support centers is dangerous psychologically. And I think that psychological health is certainly part of the overall health picture. And from your writing, I'm pretty sure you're on the same page. Absolutely, yeah. The ripple effects of uh, months and months of lockdown are vast in terms of kids' development. Um, you really need that social contact when you're young and your brain is growing. Um, in terms of, we mentioned addiction earlier, people fighting addiction issues. This is an incredibly trying time. Um, and just there is a public health cost to mass despair. Um, even things like people being stuck in abusive relationships and not being able to leave the housing situation that they're in, things like that as well. Um, So none of this is to say that, you know, we need to uh, approach, do a herd immunity attempt and, you know, let the chips fall where they may in terms of deaths and things like that. But certainly we need to have messaging about how are we going to take care of people socially and mentally, not just preserve how long their bodies are around. Right, and and hopefully some empowerment where some of the decisions they make are, in fact, their own, rather than being told that this is the way you're going to do it, accept it or else, or be demonized, as it it were. So we're we're seeing a very interesting time, and I don't think it is in any way uh, confined to the United States of America. We're really seeing this uh, somewhat in different flavors, but still the same paradigm worldwide. And so part of this is a human nature discussion and uh, power over the individual 
individual, collectivism over the individual. And it's, it's interesting to watch it play out everywhere. Uh, my crystal ball is cloudy as well. I don't, I don't know where it's going, but I, I do think that your book's coming out at, uh, in timely manner because uh, it's going to be easy to uh, say, uh, well, you're not doing this because you're lazy or casting other aspersions. That's the, that's the quick fix. But in the, in the closing couple minutes, you have three main tenets of the laziness lie. What are they? Uh, so the laziness lie is this kind of cultural belief, basically, that your worth is your productivity. Um, there's always more that you could be doing and that you can't trust your own limits and needs. And these things are just really ingrained in us uh, and, and kind of will bear us with this idea that we should always be doing more. There's always more we could be more achieving. It's just that we're giving into this sinful, awful, lazy side of ourselves. When really, um, as you've already kind of hit on so well um, throughout this hour, Feelings of laziness can be very, or what we call laziness, can be very restorative. It's good to have moments of being languid, of uh, resting, of setting limits, and learning to honor those feelings and recognizing we can't do it all. Um, that can make all of the difference, especially right now when we all need to be preserving our mental health uh, and resilience as much as we can. No, I, I agree. My basic tenet is when in doubt, nap. So uh, I, I guess I'm primed for, uh, for embracing laziness and all its wonderful facets, but you're bringing up some very wonderful points, Devin. I wish you a lot of luck with the book and look forward to it coming out in January. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me, Raleigh. Absolutely. So Dr. Devin Price, social psychologist, writer, activist, and professor at Loyola of Chicago's School of Continuing and Professional Studies. And the book comes out in January, Laziness Does Not Exist. Oh, but the world's worst hit records do, and we continue to vote on them. And whatever else you'd like to talk about next hour right here on WGN Radio.